uh, 15 verses now of chapter 16, kind of, again, keep the flow. Uh, These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. So here we're picking up on the theme of persecution. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. And that was certainly the attitude of Saul of Tarsus. These things they will do because they've not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So one more intimation now of what to expect, what they would expect immediately, what we expect in this age in which we live. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper or comforter or advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now our text, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I say that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Let's pray. Well, we continue to seek your face and your grace, even as we shall be reminded today if the Spirit Uh, does not open our eyes, we do not profit from the reading or the teaching or preaching of your word. And so we ask now for the glorious work of the Spirit who's been given to us for this very purpose. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Around the Christian church, there's a great deal of confusion with respect to the historical event of Pentecost. Uh, There are those that think it is a Uh, a thing that is repeated throughout the history of the church, and this would be found in the Pentecostal movement, uh, and that we all have to have these Pentecostal experiences uh, marked then by speaking in tongues and other of the uh, special uh, charismatic gifts. Uh, And we know that's not the case, that Pentecost is in fact a historical event that had a, a very important historical significance. Pentecost was the middle of the three feasts, Um, Remember, I I mentioned this weekend that uh, the Tabernacles was the climatic feast, and when the waters poured out in the eighth day, the Sabbath, the sign of the resurrection, Christ makes the promise there of the Holy Spirit. Well, Pentecost was the festival feast. It was, I mean, the uh, harvest feast. So it was to commemorate now the harvest. And uh, what better day historically biblically for the holy spirit to be given to the church and the initial new covenant harvest begins because as he's poured out on the church you know that that day three thousand souls and i think that included children as well 
not just adult converts, were added to the church. And then that, you read through Acts, I always get a, a bit jealous. Um, the Lord's adding to the church daily those who are being saved. <laughs> and I keep praying, Lord, would you not do that again? Maybe even weekly, but um, he's not seen fit to do that in our day. Uh, so it was a historical event, but if it's a historical event, what then is the significance for you and me as we sit here this morning? Well, on the one hand, we've seen the role of the Spirit in our lives, uh, in dwelling, uh, comforting, uh, praying for us, bearing fruit. So we've, we've got a good grasp what Pentecost means. It was the Spirit given to the church. And now because he's given to the church, he indwells each one of us individually. That's the triune God, as we saw, indwelling us. And that's for our sanctification, comfort, and courage. But in this section, I want to focus more on what is the Spirit doing now that he's been given to the church? What's he doing for the church? We recognize, again, the need of corporate holiness and, and the things for which we prayed. But I want to focus on this text here. Um, John 18, verses 12 through 15, uh, to see that the Spirit is doing something very special, has and is doing something very special for the church. So in 16, as I mentioned, Christ picks up here with the, the suffering that's going to take place, amplifying what he said in the previous section, um, and the role of the Spirit now in the world is really what he gets at in the middle section there, that he's going to become uh, to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, uh, and uh, judgment. And that's his work in the world and in applying the gospel. And now in 12 to 15, what's he doing in the church? Uh, beyond the more immediate work here of uh, sanctification. Well, what I want to show you is the Spirit glorifies... Christ in the church by teaching the church the truth about Christ and his kingdom. The Spirit glorifies Christ in the church by teaching the church the truth about Christ and his kingdom. And so we're going to see how, he, how he's doing that today, not just in the apostolic church. So we'll look at the necessity of this ministry of the Spirit, at the basis of his ministry, and at the goal of his ministry. Necessity basis goal. Well, Christ gets to the necessity in verse 12. You know, that's a word we've used a lot this weekend, isn't it? Because in that transition, as he's leaving the church, there were many things uh, that were necessary uh, to be fulfilled uh, in his absence. Um, but there's other things as well in his teaching, and that's what he's getting at here. So he says in verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Well, you know, we've already seen that they didn't do a good job with a lot of things that Christ <laughs> taught them. Uh, they misunderstood. Uh, they could in no way begin to fathom the idea of the Messiah dying, particularly being condemned by the church as a blasphemer. Um, idea of the resurrection, although he's taught about it on a number of occasions, was, uh, was, was foreign uh, to them. Uh, and the idea of, a, of this kingdom, we, we can see even in the period between Christ's resurrection and ascension, that they were confused. Is today the day you're going to bring in your kingdom? 
Uh, and so uh, they just had a lot of learning to do. And what Christ has said is, you know, I've not burdened you with more than you can handle right now. But you couldn't bear it. Uh, they didn't have categories uh, because of all the, the wrong teaching that has been going on in uh, the church of their day. They didn't have categories. You know, young people, that's one of the purposes of our shorter catechism because it gives you categories uh, by which to think as you read Scripture or as you hear a sermon. Um, does this fit in the categories that I've known? Well, they had a lot of wrong categories. And uh, Jesus said, there's just much that I need to instruct you, but you're not able right now to bear it. That also tells us a great deal about the tenderness and patience of our Savior. Uh, Leon Morris, uh, I think one time, uh, tongue-in-cheek talked about the the stupidity of the apostles. And they were were a pretty sorry lot. They were constantly confused and, and misunderstanding, asking dumb questions and arguing among themselves about, even on the eve of his death, who's the greatest? Um, they just, but he was so patient with them, and that also reminds us about his patience with us. It's, in my own life, I think back a few years ago, we looked at Exodus uh, 34. And the goodness of God, his glory is his goodness, and he's gracious, compassionate, and slow to anger. And I know your experience is like mine. He's slow to anger. I'm, I'm much worse than the apostles were. Just a slow learner. And yet he's, he's kind, he's tender, he's patient, which also reminds us as office bearers how to be with the flock as parents, how to be with our children as those in authority in other situations, how we respond to uh, those around us. As I mentioned yesterday, you know, how, or, or Friday night, how I would have responded to Thomas after Jesus has told him where he was going. Well, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Well, I just told you. No, he responds very patiently. So, as I am with those plates. Uh, so, they were not ready to receive all the deep things of the gospel at this point. And that's because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Uh, this explains the cowardice of Peter, the eve of Christ's death, and the boldness of Peter 50 days later at Pentecost. It's the Spirit that makes all the difference in the world. So he says, um, I have much more to tell you. You cannot bear it now. So he says, when the Holy, when, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So the, the spirit now, remember Christ is called the truth. The spirit's called the spirit of truth. Another way to show us that they are the one God, and in this case, two persons. He's called the Spirit of Truth because he is the unfolder or the revealer of truth. And he's going to guide into all truth. And this word guide is used, for example, in uh, Acts 8.31, when the Ethiopian eunuch, when Philip says, you understand what you're reading, says, how can I let someone guide me? It's the same word, lead me 
uh, to understand. And that's what the Spirit is being uh, promised here to do, that he is going to lead us, first the apostles, through their work, then by Scripture, is going to lead all of us um, into uh, the truth. So the Spirit of truth comes. He's going to guide you into all the truth. Now, it's not that we're going to know all the truth. We're going to learn the truth in a gradual way. But for the, for the, for the apostles, all the truth that was necessary uh, for the completion of Scripture, he guided them into all the truth. We'll come back to that here in just a, a few minutes, which leads us then to what's the source, what's the basis of his teaching, this authority, the, the Spirit. Well, he's not the originator of it, as we see in, in 13b. He'll guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative. Now, does this not remind you of what our Savior said? He doesn't speak on his own initiative. What the Father gave him, he speaks. He and the Father are one. So that was the same kind of language. He's not going to speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak and disclose to you what is to come. So the, the paraclete is not coming as a separate independent council. He's already been called the another paraclete. We've already seen identified in union with the Father and the Son. So he's not coming now as an independent agent. Now, he's coming now as the completer of the revelation of the Trinity. Remember, we talked about this economic relationship, uh, the work. You know, the Father, uh, who is personally, economically first in the Trinity, they're the same as in power and glory, but he is the initiator. Uh, the Son is the doer. He is the logos, the word. And, the, and then the Spirit is the perfecter. And we see it in creation. Uh, you know, the Lord God ordained the creation. God the Son spoke it into existence, and the Spirit garnished the heavens, uh, covered over it as it was in its uh, unformed mass. He did all these things. And that's exactly what he does in providence and what he does in uh, salvation. So God chose us in Christ. Christ accomplished salvation, but the Spirit's the applier. And and the perfecter. So this, he's coming now in this role, economic role, and that just simply means the work, uh, is, uh, is the Spirit, the, the third person who completes the Trinity, proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now remember, we're, we're, we're in deep weeds, uh, because every member of the Godhead is, of course, because he's one, is involved in what each one does. But there's preeminent work, so to speak, or recognition that's given to the, the different persons in the work that they've divided amongst themselves in perfect wisdom that they're going to do. And so the Spirit uh, is going to come, and he's going to guide you into all truth, not on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So once again, the Savior is emphasizing the unity of the Godhead. You see that. He's spoken from the Father. The Spirit now speaks from him. Um, 
And what then are these things that he teaches us? 13c, um, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. 14b, he'll take of mind, disclose it to you. Uh, 15, all the things the Father has for mine, therefore I said he takes of mine and discloses it to you. So what are these things of Christ? Well, first off, they're the things about Christ. Uh, and so it says another place here in the Upper Room Discourse that he will call to mind everything. And the, they will call, by the Spirit, will call to mind everything. So the first thing the ministry of the Spirit with the apostles is that they're going to have perfect recall. I wish I had that. Perfect recall. Uh, so um, everything that Jesus taught that needed to be remembered and put into the Gospels, everything that he did, they're going to have all the facts straight. And then they're going to know the significance of all the things of Christ. Then they'll understand the full glory, well, as much as anyone can, of the incarnation, of the two natures, of the, the perfect work of the God-man to accomplish salvation. You see, now suddenly everything will click only because it's the Spirit now is bringing the, these things to mind. He's teaching them the things of Christ. But then part of teaching the things of Christ is, is uh, now to enable them to understand all that the Old Testament had to say about Christ and the church. And so they will be the interpreters of all the prophecies and all the types and that relates persecution to David's experience expressed in the Psalms. The Spirit is causing all these things to come to light. And then uh, he is going to be working in them in terms of prophesying what is what are we to expect uh, in those early days in 70 AD, to 70 A.D., that um, there were a number of prophecies that would be fulfilled then, uh, and then the, uh, what to expect in the end of the age, and, and what do we expect through, um, through the age, even if a lot of these things of 70 AD are, are what is being prophesied, that they set the patterns, the principles, for how the church is going to be treated, and how we're going to live, and what we're going to go through uh, during this time, as well as a great print of how we're to live. So, taking the law of God. and uh, So, all of this, the Spirit is bringing... These are the things of Christ, because he's the, he's the Word. He's the living Word. And He now is given all of these things to the Spirit. The Spirit is going to work in the apostles, uh, first in their preaching and teaching. And one of the reasons that we don't find that same pattern of of expository preaching on the part of the apostles that would have been what wouldn't have been fitting. They were the agents of revelation. So even though we'll find snippets such as Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, where he seems to be working out of Joel, um, their preaching was revelation. It wasn't simply uh, our preaching, which is to preach the revelation. And thus, what they were preaching, uh, the letters they were writing... All of these were by inspiration of the Holy Spirit then. And then it was the Spirit who, of those that he wanted to remain permanent. There were other letters that he didn't keep. Now, they were just, 
evidently Laodicea and another letter to Corinth, and, and then we don't know what else. It's the same way when when writer um, Hebrews talks about the old covenant revelations. There's a lot of those that were not preserved for us, but he, he preserved what we needed, and that's um, what's happened with the New Testament letters. So, uh, by the Spirit, then we both by inspiration and by collection, we now have our 66 books of the Bible. It wasn't the church that formed the canon, okay? The churches that received the letters were led by the Spirit to recognize the divine authority. Now, what had to happen, you know, they didn't have any kind of instantaneous communication. It actually took a few hundred years in God's providence to come to the final, but it wasn't the Roman Catholic Church that declared that uh, we'll take these books, and of course they added some others as well. But it was the work of the Spirit. As our confession says, at the end of the day, it's as the Spirit bears witness in the reading of Scripture that authenticates it as the Word of God. It's self-authenticating. The testimony of the church is good. When Augustine said that I would not have believed the Scriptures apart from the testimony of the church, he wasn't saying the church gave us the scriptures, but it's important that the church has borne witness through the scriptures, even as our confession bears witness to the canon uh, that, that we have. Um, so, and then there's those uh, internal evidences that have been discussed throughout really the history of Reformation theology from Calvin on that are so beautifully put together in chapter one of the confession and in the larger catechism, but it's the Spirit's testimony now uh, to the scriptures, that they are the word of God. So this is something of the corporate work that the Spirit is doing uh, in the church, taking the things of Christ. And there's two important implications here. In the first place is the Spirit is not going to speak to the church in any other way. You need to understand this. These are battles that Reformers had to fight against the Anabaptist, uh, who, people who denigrated Scripture and put it down. And you know, we we have the Spirit. You know, the, the if the Spirit gave us the Word, then we will expect Him to do what? To use that Word as the vehicle by which He's going to communicate the mind of Christ to us. It's very important, um, and so we don't need new revelations. In fact, they would be blasphemous. Even these uh, people like Wayne Grudem say, well, we do have prophecies. They don't, they don't add anything to Scripture. Well, then why in the world do you want them? <laughs> well, they're useless. Um, no, we have everything we need. And so that's why we, again, in our catechism and in our confession, the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. You don't need anything else. And that needs to sink in. You've got the most important treasure in the Scriptures. You've got God's Word. You've got Jesus' treasure chest of wisdom. And you need to cherish it and make good use of it. Now, the second thing is because He is the one who has revealed them, He's the one who's going to speak to us then through them. You need to understand that the Bible by itself, and you're not going to like this, is a dead word. Because God never designed the Bible to be by itself. 
Uh, God designed the Bible to be the means by which the Spirit then will speak to his people according to the words that the Spirit put in the Bible. So we have an interesting, the, the writer, most people think David wrote Psalm 119, uh, whoever it was, is an inspired writer of Scripture, but how often is he saying things like, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Here is an inspired writer of Scripture, but he understood unless the Spirit illumined his understanding that he could not profit. That's why corporate worship, we have this prayer for illumination. It's not just something we do by tradition. No, it's, it is the living reality that if the Spirit does not come upon us and open our eyes to that which he has first inspired, we will not understand it. And then there's the added element of unction. If he does not give unction, which is an anointing to the preaching of the word, it will not come with living power. And another element is he must give unction to each of you as you're listening to the word to give you ears to hear. And so this is what the Spirit's doing. And this is what our Bibles are. They are the word of Christ given to the church by the Spirit of Pentecost. And just add what our confession adds, and that is we don't have the original autographs. Uh, and there was a, a bit of controversy in the post-Reformation orthodoxy in terms of, you know, exactly what's been preserved in terms of the original text. Uh, it, it's very much common sense why God didn't leave that with us, because we know what we would have done with it. Same thing that our forefathers did with... Uh, all those relics in the uh, tabernacle, they turned them into idols. Can you imagine if a, a particular place in the world had the original copy of Scripture? It would be awful. In God's wisdom, he did, but what he did give us was what we call authentic copies. Authentic translations of the Greek and the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, there are minor differences in those translations because... They were hand-copied. This was pre-printing press for 1,400 years. Well, got the Old Testament too, but that was pretty well very Except then the, the Jews came in and put the pointing uh, to the Hebrew text. It didn't have vowels. That was really would have been fun for a seminary student. didn't have vowels, but it had... Uh, so they had to come in and provide all the vowels. And, you know, there's controversy over this... Was this the right point and stuff? So now we have the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things by which we can compare. But there's really, it's, even with that, there's not any serious differences. There might be a difference in the word of the text, uh, but it doesn't teach something that's not someplace else in the Bible. And it's the same with the New Testament. And the, the leading textual critic named Metzger said, we right now probably have every 999 out of 1,000 words through the science of comparing the manuscripts and canons by which they determine uh, priority and stuff like that, uh, whatever. But uh, you're, 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 if you have a good translation of the Greek and Hebrew Bible, then you've got the adequate word of God through which the Holy Spirit will speak to you. Basically, I would say King James, New King James, ESV, New American Standard. Um, these are the things that, you know, the church has testified to, and 
That's, that's reliable. All right, so that's the Spirit taking Christ's teaching then for us. So then what's his goal? What's the goal of the triune God in this whole procedure of the Spirit now being the revealer of what Christ did and the inspirer of the apostles? Well, he says in verse 14, he will glorify me. It's very simple. The Spirit's goal as the third person of the Godhead is to shine this huge spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, I call him the silent partner in the Trinity. He's essential, but he does not point to himself. He points to particularly the Savior uh, in his uh, perfect saving work. So that all glory, yes, ascribed to the triune God, but it's ascribed to the triune God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this helps us understand things, uh, such as um, in the salutations, why is the Spirit left out? So every week you've got grace and peace, or grace, mercy, and peace from God, uh, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And these come from the various... I, one conference I did, salutations and benedictions and doxologies. So they come uh, out of that. But I'm sure that you've wondered and probably asked the pastor, you already answered the question for you, so that's good. But why is not the Spirit greeting us when we come to worship? Hmm? Because he's the agent of the greeting. <laughs> he's, the, he's the one that is communicating this message to us. Shining the light on Christ communicator of the message and this is his his role is simply to to uh, shine the light on Christ which gets us into the role of preaching and and that is this is why Paul will say I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified now you've read Paul's letters he dealt with all kinds of doctrinal and ethical things didn't he nor is every passage of scripture about Jesus Christ but every sermon should have Jesus Christ in it, high and lifted up. In fact, if we really want unction in our preaching, we best lift up Christ, who says if he's lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. And thus, the Spirit shines the light on Christ, glorifies the Godhead through Christ, now, this gives us an excellent criteria now for evaluating the so-called works of the Spirit in our day. If this is his goal, then we should have some way to say, well, now, is the Spirit really in this or not? Doctrinally, the Spirit points to the incarnation of the God-man and to the substitutionary atonement, 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is, the form, is from God. We really got this uh, uh, number one criteria that John uses, or criterion that John uses um, to test the Spirit. So we've got to test the spirits, and the very first thing you'd use to test the Spirit is, is he pointing to the orthodox doctrine of Christ. So any teacher who deviates in any way 
in the Orthodox doctrine of Christ is to that degree there's a spiritual poverty in his teaching. So we can apply that to eternal subordination or eternal functional subordination. There is a point there. I'm not saying these people are not converted. But there's a point where they deviated from the glory of Christ and we know that that teaching is not of the Spirit. More practically in our own day uh, is the fact of here's how we test the modern Pentecostal and uh, charismatic movement. Uh, the claims to a continuing Pentecost and that is where is the emphasis? And the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit. That immediately should call bells to go off from what we've just seen. As they emphasize the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, we already have the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, getting these gifts of the Spirit. Um, obviously, they're not listening. They're not glorifying Christ. They're glorifying the Spirit. And, you, you know, we'll just put it very vulgarly, he's very embarrassed. He, he's like the person that doesn't want others to talk about him. And because that is depriving Christ of his glory. Now we can probe a bit more. Oftentimes these experiences are then joined to defective views of Christ. Liberal churches, Roman Catholic churches, Orthodox churches, even, I guess worse, health, wealth, and prosperity churches where there is no gospel, no triune doctrine at all. Listen, this, that stuff is awful. Joel Olstein now has said that homosexuals are going to be admitted into heaven. These people don't know the gospel or the law. They don't. Many of them don't know the triune God. But immediately, um, these charismatic people are the you know the one God Pentecostals all that. If they're denying the Trinity, they're denying truth about Christ, about justification by faith alone. Now, can this be of the Holy Spirit? Does he deny Christ? Does he deny grace? Now, I'm not saying that in these churches, even in liberal churches, Roman Catholic churches, everybody's unconverted. By God's grace, there are Christians. Uh, in liberal churches, there's Christians in the Roman Catholic church in spite of what they're in. That would be the same with the poor dupes in the health, wealth, and prosperity churches that actually do trust the Lord. They're just being deceived by charlatans. Uh, but, but here's a very adequate test. Uh, it's, it's a good test for anybody that claims revival. What, what are we talking about if this is a revival? Well, we're talking about love for God and conversions. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is not going to point to himself. So, the Spirit glorifies Christ by teaching the church the truth about Christ and his kingdom. He does that through the scriptures that he has inspired, and through them he points us to rest in Christ and to love and serve God. And I hope, I know that you all already have a high esteem for the word of God. I hope I just kind of polish that esteem off a bit, let it shine a bit more today, because what you've got there in your lap is the Spirit's revelation of the triune God through which he has promised to speak. And we must cherish it and seek God through it 
in our daily worship privately, in family worship, and above all, in corporate worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that you've given to us about your word, about the Spirit revealing the word. What a glory it is, Lord. We pray that we'll all the more love you, holy triune God, as the Spirit shines the light on beauty and glory of the Trinity through Christ Jesus. And let us revel then in this treasure that we have and use it carefully and prayerfully. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Did y'all want to pray out here or not? I didn't pray for the meal. We usually pray in there. All right, pray in there.